I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Imp Podcast. After weeks of rumors, Google has launched the Google Pixel 5, the Pixel 4a 5G, Google Nest audio speaker and Chromecast with Google TV. Whew. A busy evening. Pocketlin editor Chris Hall is here to discuss what the device is all about and whether you should be interested. And I talked to Philip Skosberg, the co-founder and head of product at Challenger Mode, a grassroots esports company that is working to make it easier for gamers to challenge other gamers in their favorite games. And then Chris comes back later in the show to talk about the Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition, or FE for short and how it's been getting on with the new smartphone that's not necessarily just for fans. But first, Chris, tell us more about Google. Well, Google seems to have a funny year where it delayed some of its events, cancelled some of its events, and there's obviously been something holding up some of the hardware. So just having an event itself was something to celebrate. They focused on launching four new devices. That's two new Pixel handsets, a new Chromecast, and a new speaker called Nest Audio. That's a repositioning of the Google Home speaker that they had before, which they're now moving into the family of Nest devices. So if we start on the uh, the phones, that's what people were most anticipating because people were waiting for a flagship phone to launch. And what Google has chosen to do in 2020 is to launch phones that are much more aggressive on price, so they have moved mm. them into the mid-range instead. And so is this more of a kind of, you can have all the latest tech, but it's now affordable? Is that kind of a trend that's following through from elsewhere, do you think? Well, it does kind of feel like that because, I mean, the big story of this year in terms of phones has been that the the mid-range has really boosted its performance so that there is a very little difference now between what you get in the mid-range and what you get in the flagship. And the good thing about the Pixel is that the cameras that you're getting on this are going to have all of the performance that last year's flagship phone did. So there's going to be no compromising on the cameras. There's a slight reduction in the power, but this is still a 5G handset. You still get plenty of storage. And on the Pixel 5, you still get a premium build. They've managed to produce an aluminium body this time around instead of glass, and they've included wireless charging in that aluminium body, which is something of a rarity because I don't think we've seen that in a commercially available yeah. phone so far. What's strange about these two devices is they come very soon after the launch of the Pixel 4a. So there's now a Pixel 4a 5G, which moves up slightly, offers that 5G connectivity, adds an extra camera to the back and gets a little bit bigger. So the relationship oh. between the 4a <laughs> and the 4a 5G, there's, there's sort of a golf. It's almost like a completely different phone. But then when you look at the Pixel 5, that is almost the same spec as the Pixel 4a 5G. They've got the same core hardware. Um, they have, you know, they're, they're very similar in many ways. There's only a hundred hundred pounds different in price as well. So you could say that there is some confusion in the lineup, but fundamentally, you have the Pixel 4a, which is affordable and is a great performer and has a great camera. You have the Pixel 5a, which is a 6.2 inch device, which is the largest of the range 
that, that does everything but doesn't have quite as good a build quality as the Pixel 5a, which is slightly smaller, slightly more expensive, but does do a few extra fancy things. Wow. Okay, so that's the phones. Uh, ultimate line there is it seems that the A stands for affordable uh, on that side of things. So, but there was more than that. There was the you said there was a Chromecast and a speaker. How does that fit into everything else? Yeah. Well, the the new Chromecast is being called Co- Chromecast with Google TV. And this is making the change that Chromecast users have been calling for for a long time, and it addresses the biggest uh, criticism of Chromecast, which is control. It now has a remote control. It now has a user interface. In the past, if you wanted to use Chromecast, you'd have to open the app on your phone, decide what you wanted to watch, press the little cast button, and then that would appear on your TV. So it's a little bit fiddly, a little bit difficult for people Hmm. to understand. Now the new device moves it much more into line with companies like Roku and uh, Amazon's Fire TV stick and stuff like that. And it is very aggressively priced at £59. I think it's four. Well, that makes it... So how does that sit within the range? That was obviously three times cheaper than Apple TV. Yeah. But against the Roku, it's probably more expensive than the Fire Stick. It's a little bit more. It's sort of about £10 more in the UK. But I noted that in the US, it's priced at $49. So... Wow. In the in the US, it's it's even more aggressive, and this supports 4K HDR, Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos. It will give you a full range of streaming services and apps that are supported on Android TV. But the new Google TV part of it is a user interface that you're going to use to navigate around this. It's going to suggest your content. It's going to be able to access the content that you've been watching on these different streaming platforms and give you a curated experience, rather than just seeing a grid of icons that you get on some of the other devices. So that's an interesting move. I think it's going to be hugely popular. There we go. And then the speaker. Now, this seems to be from... from If you don't follow the Google speaker lineup, it does feel slightly confusing at the moment or has done over some time based on the fact that they were Google Assistant speakers, then it became Nest, now it's Nest Audio. Just walk us through that. Okay, so... All of these speakers, the smart speaker family from Google, started life as Google Home. Then Google decided that it wanted to call the app that it used to control these speakers Home. So there was immediate confusion, okay? And and so they, they slowly have been evolving these things. And, and you're right, they've had a lot of different names. And essentially what they did is they ended the Google Home family, and they had a Google Home Mini, and they had a... Uh, a home hub as well, and they moved everything over to Nest instead. And Nest now broadly covers heating, security, and home audio devices. They're designed to all work together. So it, it, it does sort of make sense because if you have a, a Nest hub, you can use that to look at your, uh, your, your doorbell, or you can use it to check out your security cameras. You can use it to adjust your heating and all of that kind of stuff. So there is some logic there. But the new speaker is just called Nest Audio, which is fairly simple once you get around the idea that Nest is now about speakers as well. Um, and it is it is more or less a direct replacement for the sort of position that the old Google Home speaker sat in. So it's affordable, £89. It very much complete, competes with the Amazon Echo, uh, both in terms of its size, its look, and its its overall functionality. Um, it's completely fabric covered. People have said that it's a strange design, 
because it's quite tall, but not very deep. And the first thing that I thought when I saw that is it's going to sit very easily on a shelf because it doesn't have a very big footprint. So I think it has been practically designed to fit into a house, um, you know, just to blend into the background, which is what Google likes a lot of its devices to do. There we go. And I know that some of the leaks suggested that all of this stuff was on sale like last week, but when's it actually all out for people to buy? Well, most of it will be coming to market on the 15th of October. Uh, That's around the globe. But there is a slight delay on the Pixel 4a 5G, and that's not going to be arriving until sometime in November. I think the 19th of November is the date for the UK. But all of the devices on pre-order now, so you can pre-order them. And yes, some things found their way onto the shelves of stalls in the US last week. Still to come, Chris gives us his first impressions on the new Samsung Galaxy S20 Fan Edition smartphone. It's still very high resolution, and and for me personally, I don't think that the higher resolution would really bring you any benefit, so it's great to not be paying for that. Esports is a rising industry. According to recent reports, global esport revenues are currently estimated to be around $1.1 billion this year with more and more people choosing to play online and organise competitions, whether for prize money or just a bit of fun. Seeing this trend, Philip Skosberg and his partner co-founded Challenger Mode, a grassroots esports site that allows you to organise free tournaments to challenge others. But it's not just about having a laugh or winning a few games. The site also promises to help gamers turn pro and help you even build a gaming community to talk to others. I talked to Skosberg about where the idea came from, what are they trying to achieve, and what's in store for the future. But started by asking the co-founder to give us a quick overview of the esports market today. Yeah, well, esports really goes back to even as early as as the '80s with the uh, tournaments in, in arcades and uh, and then all those kinds of things. And essentially, as as early as people have been able to compete in any way in in computer games, uh, whether that is you know in, in physical locations or later online, um, people have been doing it, and that is essentially esports. And uh, when somebody gets really good at something, it's uh, usually also fun to watch them play. Um, and so that's kind of the other side of, of esports, the, the watching part. And, and I would say that uh, esports really started growing with the entrance of Counter-Strike, uh, the game Counter-Strike uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, but it wasn't really until Twitch uh, became popular, the streaming service, uh, in about maybe uh, 2011 uh, or so, where esports really started to hit the mainstream and got like, um, um, well, a distribution format, quite frankly. And so how does Challenger Mode fit into that esports environment? Yeah, so so challenger mode. Uh, the way I describe challenger mode is as uh, tournament and monetization infrastructure for esports. So, in other words, what we do is that we enable tournament organizers of any kind to host and to monetize tournaments online, and for players and gamers to participate uh, in those tournaments. And so, what is that? So that if you and I were to say, right, we're going to set up a, a tournament around, um, say, PUBG, for example, we could then come to Challenger Mode and create effectively like a LAN party, as it used to probably be called a long time ago, but online and and through kind of with some metrics on on there. Is that is that the best way to say it? Yeah, that that's that, that's pretty much it. And then we also, as I said, provide 
ways for the tournament organizers or the, the whoever is hosting the tournament to, uh, for example, sell an entry fee uh, or a ticket uh, to be able to make money from the tournaments uh, or to cover their costs. And tournament organizers can also sell uh, a subscription um, so they can build like a community and charge a membership fee on a monthly basis in order to sustain the tournament and esports activities that they provide. Um, and so, how big? How big is this? How you know? You're saying that it's growing. It's obviously got bigger since the launch of streaming services like Twitch. We obviously start to see, you know, Fortnite competitions where teenagers win million pounds and things like that. How how big a market is it now for people to get involved in? So I usually think of gaming and esports in a couple of concentric circles. If we start uh, from the outside, uh, we have all of the gamers in the world. And right now there are like 2.5 billion people who play some sort of computer games, uh, anywhere from uh, Candy Crush on their mobile uh, or, um, you know, poker on their PCs to hardcore games like Counter-Strike and, and so on. And consoles, of course. And then uh, there are maybe around a billion or so who play some sort of competitive online games, mostly on PC, and uh, maybe around half a billion of people who watch or participate in esports more broadly. Uh, and then all the way down to maybe a couple of thousand, maybe 15,000 or so professional gamers, professional esports players that actually make a sustainable living from uh, playing right. competitive games. And so how does that, how do you, I mean, one of the fears I would always have of, of, you know, I enjoy games as much as the next person, but you then kind of start to think, well, esports, that sounds like I've got to be a pro athlete. Um, you know, I've got to be good at that. How do you, how do you go about getting into a game without getting annihilated in the first three seconds and then just finding it as a really bad experience? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, uh, and to some extent, that's kind of the problem we're trying to solve with a platform like Challenger Mode, where um, we're really focusing on like the, the long tail and the grassroots of esports and making, giving a, providing an outlet for players who maybe have a dream of becoming professional gamers, uh, or at least want to uh, test their skills in a more uh, kind of controlled or serious environment. Um, and so it gives them a springboard to start playing, to finding teammates, to join uh, well-organized tournaments, uh, but at, an, at a mostly amateur level. And so, and then can you build from there? So you, you get your, you get your sort of profile page, you start building, you start entering competitions on challenger mode, you start kind of working your way up Does, is, and then do you get spotted? Is that how it, is it kind of a very traditional sort of relaying it to like an athletics approach? Mm -hmm. Is it kind of that, but for games and, and therefore challenger mode helps to, to deliver that? Or is it really about just sort of having fun and maybe birthday parties and, and those kind of things. Hmm. Now, I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, we, we started out, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe more focusing on just providing a better gaming experience for, for people who wanted to try to play tournaments and making it super easy to play them online. Uh, and then over time, as we've grown the platform and we've had more tournament organizers come on and start to organize their own tournaments, uh, you know, we work with, uh, for example, DreamHack, which is one of the largest uh, tournament organizers and land providers uh, in the world as well uh, and that draws in other larger teams to compete in those large tournaments uh, so for example we um, did a um, a campaign with Fnatic, which is like the barcelona of uh, of esports teams uh, the, the you know the football uh, team barcelona yeah. um, and they actually used challenger mode to, to do some uh, scouting uh, for best players uh, through 
uh, sort of amateur tournaments that they organized. And what made you kind of get into this to start with? Were you a, a keen gamer that felt that you couldn't take this any further? Or uh, yeah, I think that pretty much describes it. Uh, it was uh, myself and, and my co-founder, Ravel, who is the CEO of Challenge Mode. And we'd both been playing uh, a lot of computer games, especially throughout our teens and uh, when we were students. Uh, and we certainly got pretty good at it, maybe not to, to the professional level, uh, but we still wanted to find a place where we could uh, play in a more organized fashion um, above and beyond what you were able to do just in the computer game itself. Uh, and that's really where we got the idea uh, of Challenge Mode from. And where do you see this going in the future? What's the kind of, you know, is it just about getting more players on board or is there more things that you can add to the story? Hmm. And certainly um, having a more users on, on the platform is, is important, but I think what we're really trying to do in the long term uh, is to provide, as I said, like the infrastructure uh, for the whole esports ecosystem from the point of view of participating in esports and organizing. So, you know, if you want to watch esports, well, you'd go to Twitch, maybe YouTube. Uh, and then if you want to participate or organize esports tournaments and, and potentially make money from them in some way, uh, then, you know, you should go to Challenge Mode. And how excited are you by the prospect of this being a next generation console year? I mean, we're obviously seeing mm. lots of excitement from customers about the PlayStation 5 and about the Xbox Series X and Series S. Do you see that as a, as a good thing for, for Challenger Mode? Absolutely. Um, and it, in fact, it's console esports is one of the things where we um, hope to make a bit of a dent in the market going forward and really open that up to esports because traditionally consoles have been sort of uh, shut off from the broader, uh, from a lot of the esports uh, tournaments and esports competition, just because it's so inaccessible for tournament organizers and players to really organize and participate in esports at scale through console games, uh, because um, most of the tournament platforms are directed towards the larger, most popular PC games firsthand. Uh, and so with our technology, we're actually able to uh, connect to consoles and uh, and provide a experience a tournament experience both for tournament organizers and for players to consoles so that's something that we're uh, working quite actively on at the moment and do you do you have a favorite do you do you are you a ps5 man or are you going to be xbox series x <laughs> well per personally i've always been a bit more of a playstation uh, gamer but uh uh, we, we really want to make it cross-platform and uh, be available on all the devices where, where gamers play. And just finally, how do you, if you wanted to sign up to Challenger Mode, how do you do that? So at the moment, you just go to challengermode.com and you create an account. It's completely free and you can join any of the tournaments that are ongoing um, or hosted by by other tournament organizers. And if, if you want to create a tournament, then that's pretty easy too. With Samsung's latest version of the Galaxy S20, the S20 FE, the company says that it's offering the fans what they want. But while that might sound on the surface like what's happening, it also gives Samsung another roll of the S20 dice and should help it boost sales in the run-up to Christmas. But make no mistake, this is a flagship phone that's been pulled back slightly to land at a much more appealing price. Now, Apocalypse Chris Hall has been using the device and is here to share his first thoughts and first impressions. So, Chris, you've been playing with the Samsung Galaxy S20 FE. How much of a fan do you have to be? Well, I don't think you really need to be a fan at all because this phone seems to be 
a distillation of all of the good stuff that you need in a phone and gets rid of a lot of the gimmicks just so that you can come in at a price point that is a lot more affordable. And we've been talking about affordable phones quite a lot this year. Obviously, mid-range devices have been getting a lot more compelling and they're coming in at much cheaper prices. And so what Samsung's really doing here is having another bite of the Apple and taking its flagship line and producing a phone that's going to be a lot more affordable. The things that it hangs on to that are important are the great display. It's got 120 hertz refresh rate, which a lot of people are very enthusiastic about because it should make your gaming smoother. It's a decent size. It has the same Qualcomm hardware as the flagship devices. In fact, it goes one step better offering Qualcomm hardware in areas that don't normally get Qualcomm hardware. So if you're in Europe, for example, you can get a Snapdragon 865 device with 5G whereas in the standard S20 range, you would be getting Exynos hardware instead. And that's something that fans do care about. And how and, have you found it when you've been using it then? Is it, does that, has that extra power, is that extra power noticeable? Well, this is one of the big debates that Samsung followers have argued about a lot, whether there is a huge difference, because you can run benchmarks and you can show that Qualcomm is the better performer um, Qualcomm obviously leads the market and, they, and it has a lot of users that use Qualcomm Snapdragon hardware and Exynos has never really been as popular. It's really, it is very hard to tell the difference. If you weren't told what was in your phone, you probably wouldn't notice the difference anyway. But for some people, they would say this is worth paying for because you know what you're getting. Um, I think notionally, the the Qualcomm stuff is slightly more powerful. And certainly the, the the real important thing is that there is plenty of power in this phone and it is more affordable than other flagship devices out there. And so is there, a, so that, I mean, processor and speed aside, what, and I know you've only just started playing with this device in, in your house. What, what are you liking so far? I love the display. Samsung has a good reputation for its display panels. It's been using those for a long time. The refresh rate doesn't bother me so much, but they've moved away from using a really high resolution panel and just come back down to a 1080p panel. It's still very high resolution. And and for me personally, I don't think that the higher resolution would really bring you any benefit. So it's great to not be paying for that. They've also made an interesting change, which some people have criticized which is moving to plastic instead of using uh, glass for the bodywork. And, so, and it, it's been called glastic because it's supposed to be plastic that feels like glass. But the best thing about it is it doesn't feel like glass. So when you pick it up, it's not cold. It doesn't get smeary and fingerprinty. It has a lot more grip. There's a beautiful sort of matte finish to it. Um, and I just think it's a better material overall. There's less chance of you dropping your phone and smashing it because it's plastic, not glass. It may not be as premium. It may not, you know, some people may care about that. But if it brings the price of the phone down, then I'm all for it. Cool. And so what don't you like about it? Well, so far, the only thing that is irritating me is that they've changed the ultrasonic fingerprint scanner that sits under the display to an optical scanner instead. And it is just not quite as fast at unlocking. And I have more failures with the system in the S20 FE than I have done in the S20 in the past. That may just be part of the learning curve. It may be that I need to go through, re-register my fingerprints or, or something like that. But that does seem to be the thing at the moment that really stands the two, the two devices apart. 
And so do you think this is, I mean, is this the best way to see this as like a, an S20S almost, right? Like a, a mini mid-season bump. I mean, are you likely, would you go, would you buy an S20 now? Or is it just you go for this one? Well, this device stands up against the S20 Plus very well. The only thing you really miss out on here in practical terms is 8K video capture. So you can't capture 8K. You probably don't have an 8K TV. You're probably not capturing content that needs you to be able to show it at 8K in the future. So I don't really think it's a great loss. That, for me personally, means that the S20 Plus is a very, very hard sell now. When is this, again, usual question, when's this out? Is it available now? Can you? Uh... Uh, it is available now. You can go out and buy it. Uh, whether they've started delivering or not, I don't know, but it's certainly available for you to pre-order and buy. And in final verdicts, thumbs up. Is it one to so far from your play? Do you think it's worth people investigating further? Yeah, I... From what I've experienced so far, I think this is probably going to be, for me, the best S20 of the year. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.